Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is my podcast about design criticism and practice. This week's episode is a little bit different than my uh, sort of usual beat. I am talking to the writer, novelist, programmer, and just general interesting person, Robin Sloan. Robin is the author of one of my very favorite books, Mr. Penumbra's 24-Hour Bookstore, which felt like one of those novels that just touched on everything that I was interested in. It was about books and reading. It was about design and typography and technology in San Francisco and secret societies. I just completely devoured it and have recommended it to so many people uh, over the years. It was just this like really great novel. And last year, a second novel, Sourdough, was published. And it was this equally just exhilarating, fun upbeat read that I can't recommend enough. But before all of this, Robin worked in media. He held jobs at Current TV and Twitter, and he blogged on a great website called Snark Snark Market, which is kind of where I discovered him during my senior year of college. He also dabbles in programming and machine learning and manages an olive grove with his partner where they are making and selling their own olive oil. Yes, we talk about all of this. But Robin is not a designer, but I feel like so much of his work is sort of design adjacent. He has this term media inventor that he uses to describe himself in his work. And we use that to open the conversation and talk about what it means to be a media inventor and the interest in working with both content and its container. And as you'll probably quickly see, Design, I think, is a type of media invention, and this leads to a truly fascinating conversation that covers everything from writing fiction to design fiction to working in media to pursuing various creative projects and dabbling in various media. I had a blast with this one. Robin is someone whose work and thinking I've admired for basically my entire adult life, and I've had the pleasure of getting to know him over the last couple of years, and I'm just so glad that we got to record this conversation. I think you're really going to like it. Remember, if you're a fan of the podcast and want to help support it, you can become a member for $5 a month or $50 a year to receive an exclusive monthly newsletter with additional content and episode previews. I feel like I'm finally getting the hang of writing these newsletters. I think each one's getting better than the one before it. And the next one actually goes out this week. So these memberships really help keep the podcast going. I just really appreciate all of your support and hope that you enjoy this conversation with my friend, Robin Sloan. discovered you and your work or first came across you and your work almost 10 years ago I think it was when I was a a senior in college uh and I think it was through snark market um yeah and you've done a lot of different things (laughs) in those 10 years but something that I think is a constant is this term uh media inventor Mm -hmm. or or, or Mm -hmm. media invention and so I think that's actually a really good way to kind of try to frame all of this is to start by just talking about that term and what that means. So how did you, well, well, like first, could you kind of just describe what that means to you? I know you have it on your website, but just talk a little bit more about that and then how you arrived at that. that yeah, term. of course. Of course. I, I mean, it came out of a struggle, um, a struggle of mine to describe both what I was doing and also kind of, kind of what I wanted to do, you know, what I was yeah. interested in or, or aspiring toward. And, uh, 
there just didn't seem to be a lot of other labels out there because I, I, I always felt myself, you know, and this is particularly true of kind of digital projects or experiments for the web or for phones mm-hmm. or things like that. You realize kind of halfway into making it that the format doesn't have a name. You know, you can't, and there's no, and there's no festival that you're going to send it to. There's no right. critical infrastructure. There's no like, oh, well, it's kind of like this, but mixed with that. I mean, there's no this or that. You're really kind of off the map in a lot of ways. And that can be, frankly, a little bit scary. It can be frustrating because you can't even explain what you're doing. Um, you do. You feel a little naked. You feel a little out there. And so I guess coming up with that terminology and that little storyline, really, around being a media inventor was kind of a way for me to make some armor, um, mm. just to kind of like like strap on these plates and say, like, no, I'm, I'm doing something here, um, even though a lot of these experiments kind of end up being a little... <laughs> sparklers sparklers in the dark you know they kind of they kind of come and they go or they're successful to to different degrees um which means that sometimes they're not successful at all um but i yeah i just wanted language and and of course just like anything else i mean this is true the first time you actually call yourself a writer you know you change your you change your twitter bio to include the word writer yeah. or a musician or animator or designer or whatever there's that sort of brace for impact like oh no, I'm not actually, and everybody else knows it, <laughs> yeah. and they're gonna they're gonna you know call me a nerd and think I'm dumb. Uh, for sure, the first time I kind of I, I had been sort of using that word in my own mind and maybe saying it out loud to people, media inventor for a while, but then I finally did articulate that little section on my website, and of course, um, because you always are, I was a little nervous and self conscious at first, but in retrospect, I am really glad that I did because first of all, other people have said. Wow, I really like that idea. You know, maybe I like that specific language. Maybe mm-hmm. I just like kind of what you're expressing there. Um, and then also just for me, it's kind of been, it has been that that stake in the ground and that reminder that, you know, some things about your own brain and the kind of magnets that pull you, you just can't change. Um, and for right. me, it's it's forever. It's been that that sort of weird stuff on the edge, those, those inventions. I think, I, I don't mean to so quickly bring this into design but because i'd like to talk about other things besides design uh today also but i think this idea the term has always really resonated with me and i i've never called myself that but it's something that has always felt like the things that i'm interested in and especially this idea of kind of giving equal weight to both the content and the container and how those things can start to talk to each other. And I think I think that's kind of what design is, or at least what graphic design is also. And something that I'm really interested in is uh, kind of challenging those containers a bit, especially, you know, you, you have a, someone comes to you and they say, we need a book designed or we need a poster designed, that all of those words, book, poster, website, also seem like they have really rigid definitions, but they don't. Right. They don't have to be the way we think about them. Yeah, I think and, that's kind you know, of a I, media invention, you know. As as I no absolutely no absolutely that's that's actually a really important insight. That's what grounds this whole thing. That um, it's not that there is one class of media inventions and another class of eternal media <laughs> right. objects, you know, right. that have yeah. existed for yeah. humans to use from before the dawn of time. In fact, they were all media inventions at one point. And I have to say, as I as I'm kind of thinking about it here on a on a little thread in my brain, I'm remembering that uh, actually write 
sort of writing my first novel, Mr. Penumbra's 24-Hour Bookstore, and doing some of the research about the history of books and the history of printing that went along with that mm. was actually quite formative in coming up with that terminology or that framework for myself because I had, I guess, known a little bit about where books came from and like, you know, Gutenberg, but honestly, not much, um, not as much as oh, I should have. And I learned a ton more. Just the, I really got into kind of the nitty gritty material and economic um, and certainly cultural history of, of books. And you do, you come to realize that everything that we now take for granted as being warm and familiar and comfortable and sort of well understood and maybe mm-hmm. even eternal, you know, if we don't, if we don't really have the right perspective, um, they, they truly, these things were invented by particular people at a particular time, often in a very particular place. And we like know what that place was. And that's really exciting to me um, right. because it means there's a path forward for these weird experiments or there can be. And so it was, it was kind of learning about that context that then emboldened me to, to think a little more seriously about what this, what this kind of work means. And but yeah, I think that's, I think that's so important. Where I, I I want to go, kind of go back in time even further. Where, where did this interest that you have in kind of playing with these forms and kind of, for lack of a better word, dabbling in in all of these different media, uh, is this something you've always been interested in? Yeah, definitely. It's it's sort of seems oversimplistic that a big question like that could have a simple answer or yeah. an answer as, as simple as the one I'm about to tell you, but truly i've thought about it a lot and sort of inspected my own memory and thought back and it all goes back to the arrival of a macintosh in my life oh, and of course yeah. i think that's a very that's a very common story yeah. um and it was it was just one of those things where you realize you intersect with something at at a really ripe and interesting age i was a kid maybe this was like 1987 or 1988 so i'm 7 or 8 years old at that time and um my parents come home with a macintosh plus and yeah. i don't know exactly where they got this Mac Plus um, or like why this was the thing at that time. I mean, I guess they had some sense that this was going to be a interesting machine to have in the house. Um, but I just gravitated towards that thing. And the Mac at that time, you know, it was so rudimentary now in retrospect, but there were things like HyperCard, which I totally yeah. glommed on to. Yeah. Somehow um, I got my hands on a copy of Director, which was, you know, this sort of simple drawing, interaction, oh, yeah. animation program, even stuff like Mac Paint, you know, just being able to create. I created little pixelated comics and I printed them out. My mom oh. helped me figure out how to print them out in a way that I could then fold a piece of paper to make a simple little booklet, you know? Yeah. And so, and that was it. So that, I mean, like there was this box, this beige box where all media, including forms of media that I had not before then known existed, all came together on one little like eight inch monochrome screen and right. so yeah that was that was the beginning once once i had sort of started to mash it all up there and and just have the opportunity to to kind of exactly dabble in all these different things there i i never saw any reason to to give that up as the years went on yeah that i want to i want to kind of quickly go through your your background kind of leading us up to today because i find this really interesting uh because i was the same way and i remember when we got our first computer uh, I was about the same age, and it had um, Microsoft uh, Print Shop Deluxe on it, and I would we, I'd like go grocery shopping with my parents or something, and I would come home and I would open up Microsoft Print Shop Deluxe and try to recreate all the signs that I had seen in the grocery store. That's awesome. And and you know I've 
at the time didn't have the word graphic design to define that thing that I did. But looking back, it's clear from six, seven, eight years old, the things that I'm doing now were kind of planted back then. And so I'm the question I'm getting to is how, what did you, when you thought about growing up, what, what were you interested in? What did you want to do when you grew up? How did, how did these things start to kind of come together for you? That's a great question. Um, I, to tell you the truth, uh, I didn't know. Um, (laughs) and and I I guess what I mean is, I, I mean, I knew what I was interested in. I knew what kind of frequencies I resonated on because you can just feel that you can sense it I have to say though I grew up in the suburbs of Detroit um, in a context like in a family and just a broader social scene that was not I mean it's just especially I just think about what I know now and what I the people I know now the kind of jobs they have the kind of work they do (laughs) you know um, I mean this is this is so funny and maybe it's overly simplistic but I had not met a freelancer, someone who lived their life in that way, um, kind of piecing together work and sort of jumping from client to client until I was in like my mid twenties and moved Mm. out to the Bay area. Before that, my entire context of just work and life was this model. And this is a very Michigan thing. This is a very kind of suburban Detroit thing. The whole model was you get a job somewhere. Um, probably at a car company (laughs) and and you work there for, and you work there for decades. And again, like this is probably oversimplistic. There were obviously other things that I heard about and knew about, but it, it really wasn't there in my life. And so I cannot say that I had a really broad palette of possibilities to sort of mm. choose from or look at. And what substituted, honestly, um, this is not a bad thing. I mean, I, I went to a great public high school and was like, well supported <laughs> and well educated. So please, I hope this doesn't sound like a complaint or bellyaching at all, but um, there's that sort of funnel for kids who are good at taking tests, um, right. people who just kind of naturally do well at the PSATs and find <laughs> right. and yeah. find calculus kind of copacetic. You know, even if calculus is not not actually what's like burning at the center of their heart, um, it's something they can do. And there's real rewards for that kind of, you know, social and I don't know, just sort of a, a weird system that says, oh, yes, this is the right direction. And so I got kind of sucked up in that um, uh, that pneumatic tube of like the honors kid. And so I think truly, oh. if you had asked me like in high school or, or even well into college, well, yeah, what are you going to do? What's your life? It was sort of being a smart person, maybe <laughs> maybe going to law school, maybe going to medical school, oh, maybe so being some sort of I know it's and it's it's so strange and, and sounds so foreign to me now. But um, but the truth is, I just didn't I didn't have kind of templates of people leading creative lives or even or even doing design or doing digital work. It really yeah, was yeah, this yeah. the kind of that default set of like fireman, garbage collector, right. lawyer. <laughs> right. This is so interesting for me to hear because I I feel like I was similar like when you when you're talking about how you had never met a freelancer or that that, that seems so foreign. I, I've talked to other people on the podcast about this before that uh, my introduction to graphic design was through blogging. I had never met a real graphic designers didn't live in the suburban town that I grew up in. That was not a thing people did. And it was this thing that I kind of found online and learned about through blogs, really. Um, how did media for you, I'm using that term broadly, 
how'd you realize that that was a career that was something that you could actually do as a job where where did you start to learn that that's a great question uh i and i think the answer is is similar broadly um it's the internet (laughs) yeah of course (laughs) the answer is the internet for me it was kind of a late stage swerve i um had studied economics in school and was pretty sure i was gonna as late as my sort of junior year i did this big project this study abroad research deal all about development economics i was sure that i was going to kind of pass along into that world and go to some try to go to some graduate program and kind of do all that that smart person high achiever sort of do gooder stuff and um i'll tell you what happened again it sounds so overly simple that it like must this must be like one of those stories that's like simplified over time in fact it was this simple I was studying abroad in Bangladesh um, for a semester. This was in the spring of 2001 with uh, a friend of mine, another student at Michigan State University. We were both there together doing a big project and kind of teaching some English classes to support ourselves and whatever else. And as we were doing this research and writing this big paper, um, we were also making a little website because I had picked Mm -hmm. up the rudiments of HTML and kind of knew how to throw something together in the little hosting space that we were all allotted uh, on the, the Michigan yeah. State web server. And so we called it the DACA Daily. It was the, the little dispatch of our adventures for our friends and family oh, back home. And this, this is a time before, you know, Skype and before really ubiquitous high-speed internet. And so there, there was a real sense, a kind of old-fashioned sense of being quite distant and disconnected from all the people we cared about. And, and really, they people who cared about us there was a real there was a real <laughs> sense from from a lot of our friends and and family like are you guys gonna be okay over there so we wanted to assure them that we were in fact okay so we ended up producing it like this rinky dink little newspaper not quite it wasn't quite a blog it was a, it, it should have been a blog but it was just a just a beat before that before yeah. that moment in time so it was this rinky dink little newspaper um we took a lot of photos we wrote these little articles tried to sort of transform our experiences into these little modules that people could actually consume and enjoy and um of course like the punchline you can see the punchline coming making that dorky little website for our friends and family was so much more fun and engaging and satisfying than the economics research work it just was i mean you could not you couldn't ignore that difference it was so stark and so palpable and to my young self's credit uh i did actually take note of that feeling i didn't brush it off i didn't come back Mm to school in East Lansing and kind of go, oh, well, well, that was weird. Onward, I actually took it to heart and uh, and made this hard left. And in my last year of college, decided I was going to try to find some way to do that, some way to get started oh, with wow. media, web media, journalism. I had no credentials, uh, again, no templates, no idea how a person even did that. Um, and so I had to kind of stumble my way forward. But um, but that was it. That was the turn. I I watched my own heart in operation and for once actually paid attention to what it was doing. Yeah. So what was that like? Like how, how'd that turn look in the moment? It was tough. I, I applied for a bunch of things, um, including a, the, my most coveted sort of post college gig would, would have been an internship at this American life oh. then. And it's just, <laughs> I mean, it's still obviously this American life is still amazing, but it was the coolest thing in the world at that time and it was in chicago which of course is like the big city or the biggest city i could then imagine right and i produced this whole kind of tryout podcast i guess sort of some sort of weird radio production 
wrote this just like deeply felt essay, sent it all in, was rejected. Um, very, very kindly rejected. Um, rejected for a few other, you know, kind of core journalism things too. And it's one of those lucky things where you just encounter the right thing at the right time and find a slot that's sort of right. shaped the right way for your weird shape. Um, there was a place called the Point. There still is a place oh, called yeah, the yeah. Pointer Institute down in St. Petersburg, Florida. I, of course, at that time didn't know anything about it, but it's people in journalism do know about it. It's this terrific sort of school and think tank um, created at the by the bequest of a of a local newspaper owner there in Tampa Bay, um, who ra- rather than give his uh, newspaper, the St. Petersburg Times, which was a very successful and still is a successful and, and really, really um, well-respected kind of regional paper, rather than sell it to some big conglomerate or or even just give it to his children, um, his descendants, he essentially created this institution. He take, took now the profits of the paper flow into this institution that is designed to just make American journalism better. Right. So they were at the time, it was kind of early web days and uh, very wisely, I think they were like, oh, man, we need some more help with this website. Maybe we can get some young people who um, <laughs> yeah. have a bit of a bit of native experience at this stuff and and who need to learn. Like maybe we can kind of do a trade. You come here and you learn about journalism and you also upload a lot of files to this FTP server and, you know, right. change a lot yeah. of designs the old fashioned way. And uh, that was perfect for me because I knew how to upload files to an FTP server. Um, I mean, truly, I had I had exactly the right set of kind of low end technical skills, and I could write and I could edit. I you know I had that facility with language, um, and I wanted to learn. So it just ended up being this perfect match. I had a fellowship there for two years doing that kind of work, learning a lot, and and yeah, that was it. That was the bridge for me. But did you? I mean, what's what's has always. Um what I've always been interested in about you and your work, and even hearing you talk about this kind of early part of your career, I keep thinking about, you know, you're talking about kind of studying journalism, but you never really stayed in one lane. Um, did you, you know, you know, like, I correct me if any of this is wrong in retrospect, but it does, it doesn't seem like you actually tried to be a journalist in the traditional <laughs> no. sense. You know no, what I mean? That's correct. That's correct. Um, yeah. And when I first kind of discovered your work, I think you were still at Twitter yeah. probably, which, um, and I don't really know. I mean, we can talk about that a little bit too, if you want. Um, but you were always kind of outside of, or I, you know what I'm trying, I'm trying to figure out the best way to say this. Um, you had these interests, but you were kind of always circling them in these very different ways. You know what yeah, I you, mean? Yeah, no, I do. I do know what you mean. And I think if, as I kind of reflect on those early years at Pointer and directly after and kind of finding my own path, I think that there was there was part of it that was voluntary and part of it is involuntary. Mm. The voluntary part was where the kind of, you know, the strategic or the, the, the choices I was making consciously, they did have to do with kind of what was needed in the world and what I maybe uniquely was good at. I did, you know, and there's, of course, other people kind of contemporaneously, you could make a whole list of folks who sat just really right at that intersection where the worlds of sort of words and media and pictures and journalism and right. stories and the Internet, you know, and blogs and, and technology kind of ran into each other. And of course, that, that's still not all sorted out. In the early 2000s, it was really not sorted out. It was super stressful and chaotic and weird and apocalyptic and, and, and exciting and everything else. And, um, you know, I just saw that I was I was there. I just naturally like that's where I in, in a way I had been kind of 
waiting at that intersection for a little while and <laughs> yeah, suddenly yeah. suddenly the whole world arrived and so there just there were a lot of opportunities kind of connected to being able to think through those things and and build new things um and i was like i would be i would be happy to do that um in exchange for in exchange for a bi-weekly paycheck from right. various various small to large corporations that was part of those conscious but i do want to say importantly that there there was and always has been this other part that's pretty involuntary and um it, it, there, there just have been these compulsions. There have been many opportunities through my working life or career or mm-hmm. all the stuff that I've been doing, whatever whatever you can call it. Um, there have been many opportunities to sort of settle down or, or pick a lane, you know, to use, right. your, to use your terminology, to be like, this is it. This right. is it. I, oh, man, I, I published a novel. Um, it, was a, it was a success. I could just do that now. I could sit and write novels and people want to read them and like, what, what a thing. Uh, I don't seem to be able to do that. Uh, and sometimes, <laughs> I mean, truly not, yeah. not, I don't, I don't mean this in sort of one of those sort of self-deprecating ways. Like, Oh, if I'm, Oh, I'm so hard to handle. Uh, no, truly, truly like right. to my own, to my own frustration. Um, yeah. I, I don't seem to be able to do that. Uh, and so that's just, at this point I've made my peace with it. I just know that that's how my mind and my heart work. Um, I want to, be able to jump around something kind of pushes me to jump around and and yeah. kind of try things that i'm not qualified to do but uh i can't say that that's a that's a strategic choice <laughs> that is just that's right. just deep deep in the cells yeah well i mean the reason i ask that is because i f- feel like the older i get the more i realize i don't think i knew that i was that way until f- three or four years ago um where i th- i thought that i you know i thought I mean, even the way you're kind of talking about all of these things you're inter- you were interested in, they were all the same things that I was interested in, but I discovered this word design that felt like it held them all together. And then I, I had settled into that lane. And then when I started working as a designer, I realized that that was actually very limited to all of these things that I was interested in. Uh, and this is reminding me, I talked to Peter Mendelssohn recently, and he use this term art monster from um, uh, Jenny O'Phil's book, Department of Speculation. Uh, The main character in that, I haven't read the book, um, but it's been on my list since he told me this because this term has just, I've just carried it around since that interview, which was like six months ago now or something. And the, the main character in this book refers to herself as an art monster. And Peter Mendelssohn said that when he found that, that was the best way he could describe his interest in that he just kind of had this need to make things that weren't there before and wasn't that concerned by whether it was graphic design or writing or music or painting. And I I feel like that's kind of you also. (laughs) You know, what I, what I love is that those two terms, and by the two terms, I mean art monster and media inventor, so clearly solve some of the same problems, right. but they do it with like this very different valence or tone or like flavor. Yeah. Uh, of course, media inventor has the shading of kind of it's, it's more technical and it's sort of the mad scientist in her lab full of right. crackling lightning bolts. And of course the art monster is the mad painter in her studio <laughs> sort right. of flecked with paint and sort of, you know, crying unexpectedly for reasons she doesn't understand but then she like transforms that you know into something on the canvas and it's it's kind of like they truly they do the same things and as you say like when you hear those words you're like oh there's labels you encounter those labels and you go that might be it there might be a word for this but i'm really quite tickled by how those 
those two things kind of do the same work, but in totally, in totally different right. ways. Yeah. So what, just to kind of finish this, this thread of, of your career, um, when you were working at, at you know, Twitter or, or current, what that was in, that was media related also, right? Like what, what were you kind of doing there? Yeah, it really was. And, and both those jobs, even though they were very different, um, there was a core similarity, which was that um, for better and for worse, sometimes I was one of the people who was going to figure out or going <laughs> to try to figure out how media and technology fit together, um, how they interact, how they might interact. Um, you know, it, it's kinda, it kind of flipped around the polarity almost inverted. You know, at current, it was being situated in a media company that was right. very interested in technology, sort of figuring out like, okay, how do we do this right? How do we not be one of the old dumb media companies that's sort of stumbling forward and saying, hello, fellow kids, here is our web yeah. portal. Um, and then at Twitter, it was a technology company that was very deeply interested in media. And it was exactly the, the same thing. How do you be a technology company that's not saying, hey, media, hmm, cool party we're all having here, all us cool media people at this cool party. Anybody want to post something (laughs) on social media or whatever? And, uh, and, you know, I think uh, the people, I and the people I worked with were successful and unsuccessful to different degrees uh, kind of along the way trying to do both those things. But um, it it was fundamentally about that, both that sort of technical and strategic puzzle, but then also the social piece of it, like just having actually good conversations um kind of across those communities and across those worlds what was your i'm curious about your relationship to i mean because this is technically a design podcast um your relationship to design or that word design because i i've found that the venn diagram of the word media and the Venn diagram of the word design are much more overlapped than I originally maybe uh, realized uh, and have found a lot of my interests. Media feels like a good word for a lot of those things. Um, and I feel like a lot of this conversation design is this kind of idea that's kind of threaded throughout, kind of on the periphery. And I'm curious just your relationship or or you know, kind of thoughts around <laughs> that word even. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, well, sort of two parts to it just leap to mind. One is that um, just as with meeting my first freelancer, coming to the Bay Area was really mm-hmm. the first time I met proper designers. I I'd worked for some designers before. I Actually, I shouldn't say that, not proper designers. People who could articulate and sort of theorize what they were doing and explain it. I mean, I think of um, someone who worked at um, Current in the early days who became a great friend of mine, for sure the coolest looking designer I'd ever met <laughs> up until that point. Like he, my friend Paul, he really, he, especially at that time, he played the part in just a super, super appealing way. And the way he also, That's he, amazing. you know, he, he was, it was early days kind of designing this whole TV network and the accompanying website and all the things it was going to do. And so not only did he kind of create the the wireframes and the flows and the sort of shape of this thing, but he explained to us what he mm. was doing and how he was thinking about it. And to me, that was a revelation. I mean, I just had never heard anyone talk like that before. And it was really exciting and just interesting. And just, I mean, really, it's like what an engaging process, like this wonderful ongoing 
puzzle and you know everybody gets to be smart together and you're making these beautiful things and they're beautiful because they're simple and blah 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 so that was cool and of course that continued all through my time at current and and on through twitter where there were some amazing amazing like just really thoughtful designers i did realize pretty early on in those conversations that on a pretty fundamental level design was not for me um Mm. temperamentally because i saw that the really good designers were about solving problems. I mean, that's what they said. Um, that's usually what they did. Not always what they did, but it's usually what they did. But like, it's so clear that this was, and, and maybe this was more of a sort of a fashion of the moment than I realize. I, I definitely don't have that full kind of context yeah. of how designers have thought about their work and talked about their work. At that time, it was really like, let's let's solve problems. Let's sort of make these things, these tasks easy for users mm-hmm. and viewers. Let's get out of the way. And always, I mean, early, early on, my sort of, my reaction silently at first to myself and then eventually out loud was like but i don't want to solve problems i want to like create problems <laughs> right <laughs> i want to i i actually want to get in people's way and in their face and slow them down and and make them feel weird um just that that whole sort of yeah. service provider problem solver model um yeah. just so did not speak to me and still and still doesn't it never has so i kind of i kind of knew early on that that probably wasn't going to be a path that i uh, kind of pursued. Yeah, I mean, that's so interesting. I, I feel like so much of this podcast has become trying to dispel of this notion that design is just problem solving, and that there are all of these kind of other ways that you can practice or that design can do these other things just besides selling a product, uh, which, is why I, which is why I think media, just to completely bring it back to, to the beginning, why I think media inventor is such a great word is because this idea of shaping content and container together to me just seems like the design process, like that that's, that's like what I want to do, you know, but you've obviously, even if you realized that maybe you couldn't be a designer or the temperament of the designer didn't match you, you, you've maintained an interest in it. And I think I mentioned this to you in one of our emails, I see Penumbra as being a book that is essentially about design uh, in a lot of ways. Do you do these ideas of design? How do they kind of filter into this work that you're doing, even if we we don't call the work design work? Yeah, I mean, so they they filter in deeply. It's the that the broadest definition of it's so funny. Even if I we were having this conversation and we're trying to kind of broaden it and reframe it, but even so, yeah, I I hear myself saying <laughs> design, yeah. and it this is I think this is actually really interesting. It kind of like clamps down for me. I oh. think I I I think of websites and like banking forms <laughs> truly, yeah, um, and like and and apps like really smooth, simple, like oh, this app is so well designed. Um, what's interesting to me, I mean, I, so I'm, what I'm about to describe is, or could be design, I guess in my mind, I would call it like visual culture or mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. something stuff, drawings. Right. Um, but I mean, everything, pictures, uh, uh, comic books, graphic novels, typography for right. sure. I mean, right. t- like, like Penumbra is it's, it's a, a sort of suspense novel and all the <laughs> yeah. suspense has to do with a font. It's yeah. like <gasps> the thrilling tale of a typeface. And, uh, and all that stuff, like just, I've, I mean, I'm one of those people that, um, uh, definitely like at used bookstores or like when I find things online, uh, I'll buy a book just because I think it has a few 
images in it mm. that I haven't ever seen before, like the kind of thing I've never seen before and, I, and I'll never see anywhere else. And the idea that I'll just like look at that and it'll be in my brain kind of stewing with everything else is worth the $15 or the $25 to like get this, this artifact. So that stuff is hugely, hugely important. It definitely filters into my fiction, into all my writing. Um, of course, I mean, some of the things that I, I produce on the web, I do design them in a sense. Uh, right. yeah. I, I lay them out on the page and choose the typefaces yeah. and, and make pictures and everything else. Um, but it does, it's, I think it's so telling that when I try to think of all of that, that whole sweep of things hitting my eyeballs, uh, I have a hard time calling it design. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to connect this in a clear way. And this might be a complete uh, turn in the conversation. But I'm thinking... I'm thinking about kind of everything that we've been talking about and, and the way that design maybe uh, feels limiting to you. And we've talked about how you've kind of moved between these different uh, mediums or these different genres or, or forms. But the other constant through all this is calling yourself a writer. And I'm, and you'd mentioned early on about that kind of, you know, nervousness of using media inventor and comparing that to the first time you call yourself a writer. How did writing become so central to all of these things? I think that story for me is, um, runs parallel to the story you hear from a lot of folks in the sense that I was a reader as a kid, voracious, yeah, yeah, just yeah. insatiable reader. I mean, and, and truly catalyzed by the public library. We had a really, really mm. tremendous public library in Troy, Michigan, where I grew up. And I still, if I go back there to, to walk through the little automatic front doors and, and smell that kind of slightly stale booky smell in there. I mean, it brings tears to my eyes. It's just, it is, that was my spot. That is a, yeah. a very, it was very important kind of, um, place where I I was invented or sort of was created by all those things that I encountered and all the choose your own adventure <laughs> books that I consumed yeah. and everything else. So that's been there and deep for a long time. Uh, again, I think this runs parallel to a lot of people's stories. Uh, it got subsumed by a lot of other kind of elbow to side by a lot of other things over the years, <laughs> whether that was other forms of media that I was more interested in, whether that was other kinds of work or ambitions for myself. But I was always a kid that was writing things or drawing comics. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it, and not just a little kid. You know, in, in college, I would find weird opportunities or excuses to, mm -hmm. to draw comics for, for uh, assignments or to, or to write things perhaps with a little more flair than I had to <laughs> right. yeah, yeah, <laughs> by, yeah. the, by the letter of the syllabus. And so it was always there. I, I sometimes think of it as like an underground river, kind of, you know, flowing through the cracks in the rock. And it's it's got real force. It, it's not going to get bottled up. It's just invisible or quiet maybe for a while. Um, but right. then it, it finds the places or the moments where it's going to leap up to the surface again. And um, and for me, it, I, I truly can imagine an, an alternate timeline where it, even today, um, is still kind of bubbling down there. Um, for me, I just was really, really lucky. I had two colleagues at Current TV who um, <laughs> who had underground rivers of their own, and we all kind of we all kind of like recognized each other, and we we're like, "Oh, you, you're into that kind of stuff too. Oh, you love reading too. Oh, you love reading this particular kind of like very nerdy book as well. Hmm, interesting." Right. And so we ended up teaming up. We formed a little writing group. There were just three of us, um, and it was just the the reason to sit down and write something, even if it was something really short or something really raw mm. or rough. Because um, you had some people you were going to share it with. We had pretty regular meetings where we'd swap drafts and kind of talk about them and give each other notes. And uh, and that's for me. I mean, it was a it was a long process of 
starting to take it more seriously and doing longer, more substantial projects. But it was for me that that sort of social catalyst that that brought that stream back up to the surface. And what kind of things were you writing in that time and, and with that group? Was it fiction? Yeah, it was. It was all we. We that's for all of us, you know. Okay. And and, and, and even now, what, what we we were all fiction readers, fiction writers. Um, you know, I think we, we, we of course different writers and different minds. We all liked sort of fiction of the weird, yeah. science fiction, yeah. fantasy um, stuff that kind of played with you know sort of the sense of the reality around us. And and in particular, I mean, this has always been true for me, but in particular at that time, in sort of the two thousands, I just really glommed onto fiction that seemed to capture the moment we were in in an almost mm. dizzying way and i think in particular of um the trilogy of books written by william gibson that begins oh, with yeah. uh, pattern recognition those are also those are also design books in a very yeah yeah very yeah you're right way. and they uh, they of course for him were kind of a, a they, they really were a, it was a big deal for me to read them kind of contemporaneously because they uh were his first books that were not set in a sort of fictional near future in fact they were by the book, they were set in the recent past, like at the time each right. one came out, its its events sort of were were a few years prior. But of course, because they were Gibson books, they were actually taking place in these sort of like hidden, curled up futures mm. that exist in mm -hmm. in every world. And so they still felt like reading about the near future or or, or really about the the future 15 minutes from now. It just was such a cool feeling to read them and be like, oh, man, this is it. This is the world we're living in. Right. So uh, I was I was very compelled to to read find more things like that, which was hard, and then ultimately to to try to write stuff like that as well. That was really my goal. I wanted to, if I had a genre, um, that was going to be it. Sort of the the fiction of the of the near 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 future, the, yeah. the fiction of the world fifteen minutes from now. I I have a theory that I want to run by you of your own work, <laughs> um, and this could be kind of retrospect it might be easy to put this pattern onto your work right of course. Um, but as i was thinking about this conversation as i was thinking about you as a writer i was struck by how it seemed like new the new f again this comes back to media invention these new forms were having such an influence on what you were writing, whether that was snark market and just this idea of blogging, whether it was Kindle singles, and then this idea of a novel or, um, or even fish, this idea of playing with an iOS app. And I'm curious, one, if that, if, if you were kind of aware of that at the time, or if that was a conscious thing, but this idea of how how the form that the writing takes influences how you think about both the output and the process. Oh, definitely. I mean, it's, it's fascinating, of course, endlessly fascinating. I, the idea of the, there's been some situations where I've been asked to write things or, or had to write things that would of course have some form eventually, but you don't really, as mm. the writer, as the <laughs> word provider, you don't really get to see it. And that, that includes like, uh, magazine stories you yeah, know yeah. where it goes especially for some magazines i've actually stopped doing this because i had a few experiences that were just kind of rough where um the text went through such a <laughs> meat grinder or not a not a meat grinder that sounds too violent more like through like a, a car wash or something they were like a maybe a sous vide machine i don't know i'm not sure i'm not sure what the metaphorical the metaphorical process is here but but it was like you know what i saw on the page um 
was one thing. And then what emerged way on the other end was like really quite different. And those transformations had not been, not been mine to make. And in fact, had been made totally outside of my oh, control or consultation yeah. or whatever. And, you know, of course, for a lot of people writing for like a long time, maybe most of the 20th century and beyond, that's just like, yeah, dude, that's what publishing is like that. Right. Yes, that's how it works. But I think it matters that, um, you know, snark market matters in that experience um, that so much of my earliest writing in public was uh, using a system and kind of a, right. a, a way of doing things that was totally under my control. I could publish something, see a typo and fix it. I could publish something, read it the next day, um, see some sentence yeah. that just kind of was like, oh, that's a clunker and change it. Uh, even I mean, and and of course, this is where the the typography and the and the kind of design really does come into it. I would change sentences to fix the way they fell on the screen. Oh. I'd be like, oh, yeah, oh, that's ugly. That looks like shit. Like, uh, yeah. oh wait, wait, maybe if I kind of if I kind of beef this up and add an adjective, oh, much better. Oh, that's prettier. Which is maybe a silly way to write, um, but for me, it seemed really natural. And so, so really, that that um, not only the the desire but really the expectation that you would get to consider form and content together. For me, it, it has to begin with blogs. And I guess I've always had a hard time letting go of it. So some of it's, I mean, it's, yeah. it's, 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 of course, you want to say that it's all like about the creative potential of, you know, thinking about both of them deeply and how they work together. And that's true. Um, but some of it is also just orneriness, I think, kind of <laughs> right. persn persnicketiness. Yeah. Is there a difference? Th this might be a really reductive question, but is there a process difference for you uh, in writing fiction versus nonfiction, whether it is like a, a something that you write for a magazine or when you were, um, uh, what was that? Remember that Medium publication? Of course. The, yeah, the yeah, message. Yeah. The, the message. Yeah, on Medium. Yeah. Um, and you would like write things like that and then you are writing this fiction and the interest all of your interests come out in both of them. Uh, and I'm curious kind of about the, the difference between them, you know, that kind of idea of building these whole worlds, but you're still feeding all of this stuff that you're interested in into versus just a straight essay or magazine piece or blog post. Yeah. I, I think that they're more similar than different. I mean, of yeah. course, fiction just calls upon certain tools um, to kind of whatever choreograph motion through space and kind of make sure people understand what's happening. And, and if you're writing something that's kind of more of a transcription of some thought process or trying to kind of lead people through a sequence of more mm -hmm. abstract ideas, uh, it's just, it's, you don't need to do those things. It's a little, it's a little different, but I would say broadly, and I, I think this actually says a lot about both the kind of fiction that I write and the kind of nonfiction that I write. Um, they actually like the way I think about it, the way I sit down to do it, is pretty similar. Um, I always think of the main objective, like truly the the one thing you have to do um, as being simply keep people reading or turning the pages. You know, that sense of kind of velocity and interest. And actually, I mean, I could go on and we could talk about this for an hour. All the, <laughs> all the, little, all the little tools and tricks, including a bunch that I learned um, way back at the Pointer Institute and still mm -hmm. feel like I use them every day. Um, and they, they totally apply to, to both forms. Uh, I've never written anything um, nonfiction that was, you know, sort of proper narrative nonfiction, you know, sort of mm, the, the, right. the close, the closely reported um, uh, timeline of some, you know, person's experience. Uh, I, I don't have the skills to do it. Uh, I would be <laughs> I would be really I would be super nervous about doing it. I would I would feel like I was going to get it wrong. 
because I probably would get it wrong. Um, but I also I also just don't have the desire or temperament, whatever that right, right. whatever that is, that that kind of practice and that that craft um, is just, you know, it's it's both not the stuff that I love the most in the world anyway. And I think you have to have that kind of covetous enjoyment yourself to, to really want to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also just not what I've ever felt like I was good at or had the kind of knack for. I've been thinking about fiction a lot lately. I've never written any fiction, although I, I have an increasing interest in it. I've been reading a lot more fiction, but I've been thinking about uh, design. There, there's there's this term in design and mostly in kind of academic circles of design fiction or speculative design, which is, uh, you know, maybe not necessarily problem solving to kind of bring it back to our earlier conversation, but about a mat- using the design process to imagine different futures, you know, with the hopes of, of kind of helping us get to that imagined world. And it's come up on the podcast a couple of times, and I don't know if this is going to lead to a question. So I'll just tell you, <laughs> I'll tell you that now. I, part of this is just to maybe hear if you have any thoughts or just to kind of articulate yeah. this for myself. Oh. No, um, I do. I do. You know, it's, it's funny. Um, here's, here's a, a seed I'll plant, especially okay. if you're, if you're getting more interested in that, in kind of following that thread and, and kind of thinking about it. Yeah. Um, I, of course, yeah, I do, I do know about design fiction. I, I have in fact written a, a tiny bit of design fiction myself in a couple oh, of different okay. contexts for kind of different reasons to, to further different, um, projects and um you know it actually relates back to to thinking about form and content Mm. together uh there's of course so many people fascinated by form and content and kind of imagining them together and 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 imagining how an interesting form might then inflect or kind of you know transform the content i would say and this is going to sound a little bit like a blanket assessment (laughs) because it is (laughs) because it is um in general, those projects, um, in considering both the form and the content, somehow they end up not taking the content quite seriously enough. Mm. I think of these experiments, and I, there's so many of them that I've encountered, and I really and I love them. I mean, I respect kind of the undertaking, and then what they produce is beautiful and interesting and kind of provocative. But then you actually start, you know, reading the words. Maybe the words are presented on an iPhone screen and they're tilted at a 90 degree angle and then you're zooming uh-huh. through yeah. like the, the whole of the of the O to get to the next sentence, you know, whatever. It's <laughs> right, like, right. cool stuff. You actually, you know, read the sentences and you're like, well, this is maybe C plus. Right. And it really ought to be A plus. Like the form is a solid A, you know, a dizzying experiment. Um, the, the words that are kind of bound up in this thing, they really ought to be an A plus as well. And they're not. Um, too often, they're not. Uh, and I think the same thing about design fiction. I have been responsible for some of this design fiction myself, so I do not, <laughs> I do not stand apart from this, um, from this critique. But uh, there's a lot of that stuff that, um, you know, there'll be some, some seed of a really dizzying idea, something right. cool and troubling and provocative. Uh, but the story itself, as a story, it's, it's just plainly not an A plus. It's a, it's a B minus or it's a C plus. And, um, and I think that's a shame. It's, uh, it's hard to write a plus short stories with yeah. any subject matter, you know, with any objective. So maybe that's no surprise, but, um, I, I, I would say that my kind of my, my broadly applied cocked eyebrow at that, uh, at that whole, uh, sort of genre is we got it. We got to make sure we're actually writing good sentences and writing good stories. I, well, and this is interesting because I, you know, I've talked to a lot of designers obviously and designers who are working in this this 
uh, this kind of mode. And so a lot of the questions are questions of form. And so as someone who's maybe on the other side of that, do you have thoughts on how how to bring those that kind of form and content closer together in these types of projects or how to elevate those stories? Because it often, you know, again, another blanket statement, coming from a design world, the form is often the thing that is the most interesting to us. Yeah, of course. Uh, of and so course. How, how do yeah. we bring those together? How, how, how do we start to kind of elevate both of them so they are influencing each other so you don't have that that kind yeah. of letdown? I know that's a big question. It is a big question. I, you know, the, the, uh, I have to kind of tip my hand, which is that my sensibility for media, design, culture of all kinds leans really, really pop. I I like the idea of things being uh, ex- not only accessible to a lot of people or everyone, um, but appealing um, right. and seductive, you know, and magnetic, and just having that whatever those those various sort of media pheromones are that kind of make people go, ooh, yes, more, 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 more. Um, we know now. I mean, like we we have enough media in the world, great media, uh, to demonstrate that um, the pop can also be serious right. and rigorous and sublime and everything else. So it's, it's in no way sort of a, a trade-off between, between seriousness and, uh, and, and that sort of pop sensibility or that pop appeal. So, um, I, I say that only because I know some people might disagree with it. They might say that is a total, um, mm-hmm. that's the wrong path. It actually doesn't matter. The things that we care about most now, they did not begin as pop projects. They did not, um, imagine an audience for themselves. They were, you know, poems written in a dark in a dark cabin right. um with no expectation of ever being read and, and in fact they never were until until after their author died you know whatever um which is fine i mean that's actually a very interesting tension and an interesting conversation however if you accept at least a little bit my premise that um that the sort of power of pop is is appealing um then i think all it takes is a little more discipline it takes the discipline to sit and look hard at what you're creating and ask, like, is this good enough? Does it have mm-hmm. that that sharpness? Does it have that like umami? Uh, and that can you can you can achieve that so many different ways. It's like there's a whole toolbox of different things you can do, and they relate to voice and plot and and different kinds. Of, I mean, it, of course, this yeah. is not just about language. It, you can do this with images and and video and and you know cinema and everything else as well. Uh, I just I think it takes being kind of hardcore. And, and challenging yourself or your team uh, to create something that sort of meets that standard. I love that. I want to shift gears again a little bit uh, because I want to talk about all this other stuff that you do. <laughs> um, you know, this kind of these machine learning experiments that you've been playing with, just uh, programming in general. You're making olive oil. Uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> of course. Yeah, the standard. It's the standard trifecta: fiction, machine learning, and olive oil. Right, I know right. nothing, nothing could be more cliched. Yeah. I, well, the the reason I want to talk about it is because you you tweeted something recently that I've been thinking about a lot about how you have this kind of divide between work and then just you know fooling around uh, or just kind of like tinkering with things. And I'm I'm maybe this comes back to this media invention art monster thing. Uh, how do all of these things fit together? Do these things that, you know, maybe are quote fooling around or, or fun or completely different than, than the writing and the media work. 
how do they start to kind of influence each other? Or what are the, the conversations that are happening between all of these projects that you're working on? Oh, yeah. I mean, this is this is the thing that um, is so just truly powerful and seductive um, about fiction is that uh, anything can become yeah. material for that for that machine, truly. And and in and it does in in unexpected sort of slow burn chaotic, um, very path dependent ways. It's awesome. It's really to, to kind of see things that emerge and, and successfully the things that really matter in central ways to stories. And then ask yourself, where did that come from? And realize it's some really random experience 12 years ago or the, or the beginning of some interest, <laughs> yeah. you know, a decade ago. It's that's cool. That's a, that's a very satisfying thing to see. Now the flip side, um, is that this becomes a very, uh, how do I say it? an almost like perfectly powerful excuse to waste time and or money on anything because you can say, well, yeah, but it's going to be material for fiction. Right. And you're, and you're not wrong actually. Right. right. Um, but I have definitely, I've seen myself um, maybe play that card a little too liberally. Like there's only, I only have so many in my deck and maybe, maybe a few of these projects should be a little bit curtailed because I'm not going to write that many books <laughs> Yeah, yeah. in my whole lifetime. So, so, but it is, but it, that's all to say that, um, it does matter. Um, and it's, it's learning about the deep history of things. It's getting engaged in subcultures and, mm -hmm. and learning how people in subcultures think and talk and communicate with one another. I mean, the Olive Grove, it was, that was a total, unexpected thing in my life. Um, I mean, you follow the steps and they all make perfect sense. And, and, you know, if I kind of told you the story, you'd be like, well, yeah, of course you're managing a three acre olive grove with your partner. It was inevitable. Um, but it definitely did not seem inevitable a couple of years ago. Uh, and as you might expect, um, for someone who spends a lot of time in front of screens and right. yeah, yeah, yeah. soldering irons and kind of hunched over desks, being out in the world in a grove of trees is a pretty different experience. And, for me, that's been a stockpile of just sensory stuff. I mean, some of the oh. things I've smelled and heard, like just these odd sounds, um, sounds of the world and sounds of, of, of farming spaces in particular mm -hmm. uh, and feelings and the, and the way that, that different tasks and, and failures feel. I mean, that is all just some of it. Much of it is literally going into the notebook. And of course, more is kind of just filtering into my brain to to emerge again in unforeseeable ways <laughs> yeah yeah i mean hearing you talk about this this excuse of of you know spending money or wasting time is actually really refreshing you know and i, and I actually think there's there's a way in which it can become if if you frame it that way and maybe just accept that there's always going to be that tension the tension between uh this is extremely high class procrastination right and and no it's it actually is the work or it's at least part of the work and for me it's um it's changed the way that I do some of these things. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I, I truly believe that I, I certain things that I read are kind of like things I start researching or kind of, you know, I, I have a sewing machine here in this room with me and I, I've been doing these sewing projects. Oh, interesting. And I've, if, if I didn't have this other kind of context, I don't think I would have paid attention as much in a way. I'm, I'm, I am doing this sewing stuff kind of knowing or expecting that there's going to be some character in a story or some kind of scenario that involves sewing and, right. and fashion and clothes and the, and the way this stuff gets made. And it, it does, it becomes just a, I think a cool way to kind of engage with this stuff. And it certainly means that I do, I take more notes. Um, I, I am a compulsive, uh, just huge note taker of, and you know, of course that's interesting ideas I encounter out there in the world, but it's also just things that I kind of notice in myself. Uh, and it yeah. can be 
again, the, the way, the way doing a certain task feels, if I kind of, if I just notice, it, I'm like, oh, this is funny. My, it's interesting how this, you know, my arms are tired after doing this for only a little while. I'll like make a note of that or just, or just some little scribble to kind of remind me. Um, cause that, I mean, I've been doing it for, for 10 years now and, and that big pile of notes it is, it's a, it's just an absolute treasure. There's so much weird, yeah. good stuff in there. I asked that question very selfishly because I am working for myself basically for the first time in my life over the last year. Uh, and, and the hardest part of that has been kind of, uh, you know, this sounds so, so stupid, but it has just been how I spend my time because there is this scaling of, there are things that are, you know, not work, or there are things that are like research, you know, and maybe that's watching Netflix or reading a book or something. Uh, and then there are things that are producing things, but they're not making money, whether that's writing something or this podcast. Uh, for, for, you could argue. <laughs> right. uh, and then there's the, the stuff that that makes money. And there's that scaling and, and kind of figuring out how much time I can spend on each of those things has become a really interesting uh, and challenging kind of thought experiment. And I apologize for the reductive question, but what's what's your day? <laughs> what's a day look like <laughs> for you that's jumping between sewing and writing and machine learning and olives? Let me let me actually let me sort of uh, interject something different before okay. answering that question, yeah, yeah, which is just it. as I as I as I think about you contending with that and and you know trying to justify your your Netflix viewing or whatever, it it makes me think that maybe there's an analogy to the way that I, maybe this has always been a, an ongoing conversation. I feel like I've only been exposed to it in recent years. Sort of a a sense that it's really helpful to everyone if people talk about money more, mm -hmm. how yeah. they make money, where it comes from how they think about it, how they plan it, um, you know, what the, what the sort of struggles and kind of hangups are. Um, because, because it's one of those things where it's out there in the open and you realize that your own experience is, well, you, I mean, maybe right. you realize it's not normal. Maybe you realize it's deeply normal. The point is you can kind of plot it, um, on a, on a spectrum or on, on sort of in a, in a field of possibilities rather than just being this point alone in the world. And you're like, am I doing it right? Right. So, so with that, and so anyways, I think that's all great. Um, and, and actually just really, really healthy and, and useful. I wonder if, um, some accounting of this stuff of, of time spent just, just absorbing other things and, and enjoying them, like not treating it like homework, but, but watching movies and absorbing things on Netflix and reading design books and, and browsing the internet and, and everything else. Um, I wonder if, if actually a, uh, more public and honest, accounting of those things by a lot more people wouldn't be interesting and healthy and productive. And I'm thinking of something specific, which is uh, a list published. I, I don't know if it's been published in, in previous years as well, but I know this last January, Steven Soderbergh, oh, yeah, great, yeah, yeah. you know, director, um, published this really <laughs> hilarious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hilariously I stark, love these. Like, right. His like his like media list. Uh, so first of all, the fact that he keeps that list at all is just wild to me. Amazing. Yeah. Um, I try, I was like, after I saw it, I was like, so yeah, I guess if people don't know, this is, it's his accounting of all the media he consumed in the whole year and it's, it's full and it's complete. And in reading through it, you see that Steven Soderbergh, who <laughs> is very successful and one presumes, um, you know, certainly busy and, yeah. and occupied and engaged. 
he watches like a minimum of a movie a day. <laughs> I mean, it is, he is just, and like often, like it'll be some Saturday and he queues up three movies. Yeah. Um, and there's also books and music and stuff sort of filtered in there as well. Um, so first of all, and it turns out that's hard to do. After I saw that list the first time, I was like, I too will keep this accounting. Yeah, How I'm interesting. doing it. I, I'm and doing I, it this year. Oh, you're doing it? Oh, good yeah. to see. Good for you. I've, I've, I, I added three movies to like a Google spreadsheet <laughs> and I punked out. I just was like, I can't deal with this. But but it's actually, it's I, I found it quite radical to look at that and, and actually just realize how much of his day yeah. you were seeing kind of accounted for. That's really And to kind of go, wait a minute, maybe this is, maybe this is it. Maybe he is Steven Soderbergh because he takes this part of it so seriously that's i mean so this is the work it really is the work i i've been following these lists of his for a couple years now and i have never thought about it that way before yeah and so yeah. it's you know it's I, one of my huh. favorite things in the world is sort of to just to, to think about and sort of i don't know it's just delightful and strange the way human brains yeah. work uh the way we sort of um conceive or or imagine other people's lives and those other people could be Beyonce and Jay-Z, they could be Barack Obama, they could be our friends, our peers, our arch nemeses, you know, whatever. And it's so, you think about what actually happens in your day that you know about, and you realize that, like, you never afford any other human, like, any other human that rich and textured a life. Like, it always, like, I don't even know what I imagine that other people do, particularly people that I, you know, other writers, I'm like, oh, I would imagine if I could be a writer like that or if I if I could write books like that um and it's I, I so I think you know again that that sort of yeah. thing is is actually a great public service and and maybe there's more work to be done in sort of uncracking uh, the reality of how people in particular creative people um spend their hours and their days and 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 allocate time to, to precisely to those different um categories that you kind of that you sketched out yeah I, so in, there was a pod, there was a slate podcast a couple of years ago called working where they would interview people and basically just have them go through their day at work. This is what I do when I get to the office. And I found it so fascinating because, especially when I worked in offices, I would just look around at everyone else there and and not, uh, this is gonna sound kind of condescending or arrogant, but it was, how is that thing that you do a full-time job? Like, what are you doing all day? And it wasn't that I thought they weren't working, but I just couldn't figure out basically any career that's, you know, more than five degrees away from what I do, I just have realized that I don't really know anything about. Uh, (laughs) And the podcast was great because suddenly you could see what a mortician does for eight hours a day or what a, uh, you know, uh, programmer or whatever. Um, And so I think I've never made those connections that you just made. I think that's so interesting. What, What are subjects or topics that you're thinking about right now? What's kind of on your mind? What's getting you excited? Well, you mentioned machine learning before, um, and it, you know, I've been dabbling, tinkering, sort of, um, you know, experimenting with um, some of these machine learning techniques as they apply to text in particular right. and generating text and kind of transforming text for a couple of years. It's been just about a solid two years now, and it continues to be very um, provocative and kind of magnetic for me. Uh, my next fiction project, probably the next novel, is going to use some of those techniques. It's going to... Oh, interesting. It's gonna, yeah, it's going to flow into the text itself. Again, you know, it's, it's, I, almost, I almost think I need to stop saying that out loud because, <laughs> because you know, going back to our, our, the earlier part of the conversation, I don't want it to be the gimmick of the form 
I want it to right. be A plus. I want it to be A plus prose. And right. by the way, you know, if you're interested, if some of it was generated in this in this sort of odd and, and new way. But um, but I am. I mean, I can't. I just can't. I can't deny that I that I am in 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 fact really compelled by the the form or or I guess that would be the mechanism um and the right. way it all works and the thing just the things I've learned about those techniques um that the community of people um you know kind of pushing the state of the art in AI and machine learning forward uh the way it's made me think about my own brain um and mm. and and writing and creativity uh it's just it's really pretty trippy and and kind of dizzying so so that's that that continues to be a big strand of work for me um and then i still think comic books are the ultimate medium <laughs> yeah. uh and so i don't know i've, I've been trying to i my the, i guess it's, it's like it's like two this is actually good it's a good it's a good kind of two ends of the spectrum on one end it's like this, this kind of very well established project that i feel like i've made real progress on and developed a, a certain amount of kind of enthusiast level expertise right very technical very machiney and then the other one, um, which I've barely begun, um, and I'm still horrible at, but I, I, I used to draw more and I would like to start drawing a little bit oh, nice. more again. And, and maybe just, I, I, I feel like if I, if I could write like a 12 panel comic and post it on the internet, that would be success. That would <laughs> yeah. be like, my work here is done. Yeah. <laughs> I no, love that. That's the other thing I'm thinking about. Uh, that's a good way to, to kind of segue into the last question. And this is how I end every interview. Who are the writers or what are some of the books that you find yourself returning to again and again or or even you know the people that have shaped all of this that we've talked about the way you think about these things if someone listening is kind of really interested in this what are who are the people on that reading list oh man i should have prepared for that one um i'll just i'll say what springs to mind immediately which is going to be a super weird that's all I, yeah that's all um, i ask Whenever people talk about kind of like what to read next uh, after Mr. Penumbra's 24-hour bookstore, the novel, or kind of mm-hmm. what what extends those themes or kind of or kind of rhymes, you know, with that book in a way, um, I always tell them uh, that if they are interested in the history of books, the real gnarly, like, down and dirty history of books, not the sort of, ah, the magic of printing, <laughs> then there's a book called The Book in the Renaissance by uh, mm-hmm. Andrew Pedigree. It's a slim little volume. It's one of those great histories that's like, it tells you all the good stuff about the rise of printing and publishing, the economics of it, the stories of, of these different publishing houses like stealing from one another. I mean, it is so, it's like they were printing Cicero. So like, <laughs> it's all like very like sort of high culture, but man, it was, there were some like back alley deals happening. Oh, interesting. And like, oh, it's, it's so good. I mean, it's really, it, for, it was one of those things that really, that really cracked open that, that world in that time for me. So, oh, wow. so I always recommend that to people. Um, the book in the Renaissance um, boy, I mean, this is going to be so unsurprising to, to your <laughs> listeners, but, um, I have read Understanding Comics by Scott oh, yeah, McCloud yeah. probably yeah. 10 times. It just, and it does, you know, if, if people know it, but haven't read it like in the last two years, I, I encourage them to go back to it yeah. and it's, I gotta and you'll reread find it. it. Yeah. You'll, you'll, you'll find this like better than you remembered and has so much to say. It's one of those books that's, um, just almost spookily prescient about things that aren't even comics i mean i think it has a lot to say about the web um mm-hmm. about digital design just about everything it's awesome i was uh, probably my single biggest fanboy experience often I, i'll get asked to um kind of interview authors when they come into town i'm like the person at the bookstore who I, oh, i'm yeah. you i'm the, yeah, I'm yeah. the Jarrett. <laughs> i ask them questions when they come into town with a new book and and they sort of politely answer them and then they you know we turn it over to the audience and and then they sign their books 
So um, Scott McCloud is coming into town with his new sort of opus oh. uh, novel, graphic novel called The Sculptor, uh, a little while ago. Um, and I, they, the bookstore invited oh. me to interview him, and I was just like <laughs> vibrating. It was amazing. Um, and what else? What else? What else? Um, there's a here. Here's here's a curveball. All right. So that's okay. that's the one that's like yeah yeah yeah. Of course. Here's the curveball. It's another book about media. It is uh, a little bit hard to get your hands on. You, you can get it online, but it ends up costing like forty or fifty dollars. It is a book by someone named Mitchell Stevenson. It's called. This is very. This is a very Jarrett Fuller book, by the way. I don't okay, know if you ever this. It's called. It's called. Um, the rise of the image. The fall of the word. No, I don't know this. It was, yeah, it was written in 1998, which is. In fact, like a, I, I, in some ways, it's like a very unfortunate moment to be writing that book um, because it, you, there's like this digital video future that he foresees and kind of talks about and, and, and just, you know, explores, but basically no internet. Like the, the whole, I mean, there's an internet, but there's no video internet. Right. There's not even any prospect of a YouTube. No, no way of even a glimmering, anything like that. So, of course, so... The, the title of the book tells you everything. The rise of the image, the fall of the word. Yeah. Um, all of its predictions are basically wrong or have turned out to be wrong. Uh -huh. But it is still like like the essence of it is so bracing and so provocative and in a way so utopian. I mean, it's really about um, it's it's kind of there's a diagnosis and a, and a prescription. The diagnosis is is about sort of the rise of video and visual culture. And then the the I guess that's a maybe it's a prognosis, not a prescription. Uh, it's about how to to maybe make video and, and moving images denser and richer and, and even to give them um, some of the properties of of words and sentences and paragraphs. Super speculative. Um, lots of lots of pictures, lots of cool, like sort of screen grabs of things kind of interspersed with the text. I read it pretty shortly after it came out. And it seemed like a amazing vision of the future. It was actually one of the things that made me want to work at at Current TV in oh. San Francisco. Um, and and I still go back to it sometimes. It's one of those. I, I think that's an amazing thing to pull off um, to write a book that is at least in part sort of looking forward to have it turn out to be completely wrong, but it's still great. I mean, yeah. it's still like I find it actually quite inspiring. So so for anybody who's interested in in kind of the culture and, and the, yeah, just the grammar, actually. That's the right word for it. The grammar of video and, and moving images. Um, it's, it's really worth seeking out. The rise of the image, the fall of the word. That, yeah, that sounds great. I'm going to try to find myself a copy of that as soon as we hang up <laughs> this call. <laughs> great. Um, Robin, this was so fun for me. I, I, I mean, like I said, I, I'm pretty sure I kind of came across you and your work my senior year in college and I, I don't mean to to end this overly sentimental but I feel like your writing and thinking and just kind of publicness has really shaped so much of kind of my adult creative what it means to be a creative person life uh I feel like I've just learned so much from you over the years and so I'm really glad that I finally have you on the podcast so thank you so much this was so fun oh man well Jared it's a total honor to join you here and uh I, I think this project is truly the coolest thing so um thank you for inviting me this episode was recorded on july 6th 2018 our theme music is by andy borgasani we're on twitter and instagram at surface podcast you can find us on apple Podcasts, google play soundcloud and at scratching the surface.fm thanks for listening